0: Now, to begin with, I want you to take your Bible and turn over to uh, John chapter 13. John chapter 13. And, And I want to read verses 34 and 35. John chapter 13, verse 34 says, A new commandment I give you. That you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. If you've been with us, you know that we're working our way through the gospel of John. And uh, we've been doing that for quite some time now. Uh, Last week, we finished up with chapter 13. And while we finished up with chapter 13, I wasn't quite sure that we were really ready to move on to chapter 14. So we're going to set aside this morning our series in John. And I really felt compelled in my heart all week that we need to go back and consider these couple of verses uh, one more time here, uh, verses 34 and 35. And the command that Christ gives to those who call themselves his followers, um, uh, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. And I think we need to ask ourselves a heart question and a little more in depth. Exactly what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that look like? So again, this morning is going to be a little bit different than normal. It's going to be somewhat of a, a family talk. I consider us all family, so it's going to be somewhat of a family talk. And we're going to address uh, through the word some issues that are on my heart. Now, I love the church. And I love this church. We've been here a long time. I love this church. I love this fellowship. And I think each and every one of us here could say the same thing. We, we love the church and we love this fellowship. We love the church because Christ has loved us. And we want to be a part of a place, a fellowship where he's honored, where where you can bring your family and you can sit under the teaching of the word of God and the word is everything. Some of you have been here for a long time. Some of you have been here for a little bit of time. Some of you have only been here for a short amount of time. But the truth is we're all here by God's providence. We're all here according to his sovereign purposes and his plans. He's the one who has directed us all here together at this point in history. So every one of us in the room is really here by divine appointment. And he is the one who's building his church. He's the one who's building his church and we just happen to be the beneficiaries to be blessed uh, to be a small part of this fellowship known as Cornerstone Bible Church. And again, we love the church and we love this fellowship in particular because we love the Lord Jesus Christ who's loved us first. The one who's given his very life blood for us, for the church. And, and again, who by his great mercy and grace and his love have placed us all together, we who have repented of our sin and turned uh, to the person of Christ alone for our salvation and brought us into a, a spiritual body, again, this this uh, group of people known as the church. And again, the church is being built up by God and by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, not by men, uh, not by the ideas of men, not by the techniques of men, not by the skill of uh, uh, of teachers, but by Christ himself. He told Peter in Matthew sixteen eighteen. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. There's no power on this earth that can prevail against God's plans, his church that he is building. Again, I go back to the psalm I read out of Psalm 24. This earth belongs to the Lord. And if we are believers in Christ, we need to believe what God's word says about every single issue and not listen to the culture that is not anchored or more in any truth moored like like a a a boat to a dock, they have no foundation to stand on because they've rejected objective truth revealed to them in the word of god therefore the entire world is being seduced by lie after lie after lie because if you don't believe the truth the only thing that is left for you to believe is a lie and i've told you before i don't think satan really cares what lie you believe as long as you believe a lie it's irrelevant to him just as long as you don't believe the truth christ says i'll build my church and the gates of hades won't overpower it." so again the church the body of christ that's where the holy spirit dwells it's the place where god's glory is most manifested on the earth it's the place where god's people come to hear his word it's the place where the very word of god accomplishes exactly what he desires for it to do which it'll never return back to him void The church is the place where the always faithful God who cannot deny himself is always working in the hearts of his people, his children, genuine believers, and he's always in the process of conforming us more and more to the image of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the church is the place where God's plans and his eternal purposes are and will be carried out from election to salvation to sanctification all the way to final glorification. All of this happens and and is carried out in and, and through the church. Therefore, the church is the most valuable thing on the face of the planet because it had been bought with the highest price ever paid for anything, that being the shed blood of the dear Lord Jesus Christ. First 1 Peter 1.18, Peter says, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your field way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of a lamb, the unblemished, spotless blood of Christ. Paul to the Ephesian elders, Acts 20 talks about them shepherding the church of god that was purchased with his own blood the church is precious and it has a precious value and the church is precious because it has a precious savior who is willing to leave eternity and step into time and put on our flesh and suffer the agony and the humiliation of the cross to die in our place again bearing our sins as our substitute we love the church because it's the one place on, on earth where God's will is carried out exactly as it's carried out in heaven. We love the church because it's a place where God is worshipped, where he's praised, where he's adored, where he is loved. Uh, again, it's a place where Christ is exalted, a place where holiness and purity is modeled and lived out, where true fellowship and true love and true unity can occur. We love the church because it's a place where more than any other place on the earth, where God's truth and His Word is upheld. First uh, Timothy, th- uh, First Timothy three verse fifteen, the church of the living God, which is the pillar and support of the uh, truth. And I love the church. I love the church in general, and again, I love this fellowship. I-, I love this body of believers that I have a privilege of being a part of. That God has called me to shepherd and oversee here at Cornerstone Bible Church, uh, to lead along with the other men that God has called uh, to be elders over this fellowship. And, and because I love the church, I, I love you. I, I love you because as a people called by God to himself, um, he has a special love for you. And I love what God loves. I love whom God loves. And because I love you, I'm always thinking about this place. Ask my wife. I, mean, I think about this place all the time. And I'm always thinking about this place and often praying for us, for all of us, that, uh, the, for the spiritual health and spiritual well-being of this congregation. Always asking myself, how are things at the present? How are things going presently and what direction might we need to go in the future? And, and the truth is, at the moment, things are going pretty well. I mean, we're obviously growing in numbers. And I think we're also not just growing in numbers, but we're growing in our knowledge and our love of Christ. But to be honest with you, I am a little concerned. Not often, but every once in a while I hear something that makes me concerned. Certain hard attitudes in the fellowship that I think we just need to be aware of and on the lookout for. Certain hard attitudes that aren't helpful to the fellowship and if not addressed could grow into a problem. so this morning I want us all to do by way of examination through the word of God I want us to do a heart check I want us to ask ourselves sincerely what kind of heart attitude should we all possess and again I want to ask the question what exactly does it mean to love one another as Christ has loved the church what does it mean to love in word and deed not just to say that we love but what does it look like not by just word but what we do So I hope it's helpful. Obviously, I didn't come up here to be unhelpful. I hope it's helpful. And and listen, I'm not chastening anybody. I don't preach to anybody. I don't preach. I preach to everybody. I preach to myself. I preach to everybody. And again, I don't sense at the moment that attitudes are out of control. That's not the purpose for doing this. I, I thought in my mind, I need to do a preemptive strike while things are going well. long, long time ago, I preached a series of sermons called How to Destroy Cornerstone Bible Church i thought it was helpful because things were not things were going pretty well i thought if things are going pretty well this is the perfect time to say how to destroy this place if you want to keep it the right track the way god is calling it make sure you don't do these things in the sixth series sermon i think it was oh they'll tell us really what's going on behind the scenes i'm saying there's nothing going on i just thought it would be helpful oh there's some kind of problem here this morning are you no i'm just telling you it's a preemptive strike Let's just stop. We just worked through this in the text. Let's just stop and consider it again. Let's address issues before they're issues. Because I think it's always good to stop and evaluate our hearts from time to time just to make sure we're on track and we're honoring the Lord in all that we do. Now, like I normally do, I introduce my introduction and then reintroduce my introduction. But that's okay. You're used to that. So here we go. I, I'm, I'm well aware that I would fail the homiletics class, but that's fine. We talk a lot around here about the fact that we live in troubled times, right? We're living in troubling times, uncharted waters to some extent. Things are changing very rapidly this day, this day uh, every day in this country and around the world, really. It's crazy. Because, again, you have a group of people who have been deceived by a lie and won't accept the truth. Therefore, the devil kind of has his way with them. Every day in this country, it seems like we're losing more and more freedoms in this country. Even religious freedoms, I think, are being jeopardized. Certain things that we once took for granted are coming under attack. If you look at the direction of the world and the events that are going on in it, I think many of, us, many of us would come to the conclusion that perhaps even in our lifetime, open persecution could become a real reality uh, for Christians here in this country. And that would be a problem, obviously, but in God's providence. But the most concern that I have for Cornerstone Bible Church doesn't come from the government, doesn't come from the culture, doesn't come from the world and its pressures upon us. The greatest threat facing Cornerstone Bible Church is us. Because the truth is the church is never destroyed from the outside. All persecution ever does is increase the love and the zeal that those who genuinely are saved have for the person of Jesus Christ. Persecution for the true church will always increase increase its outreach, its evangelism, its gospel power, its faithfulness, its loyalty. Because persecution purifies the church. Persecution purifies the church and it exposes the reality of those who have a real love for Christ. So the church is never destroyed from the outside. The church is always destroyed from within. Because as wonderful as the church is, as wonderful as this fellowship is, the problem with the church is that it's made up of sinful people. Forgiven people, no doubt, but sinful people. People who are at various stages of uh, doing battle with their flesh. People who are at various stages of either victory or defeat. Therefore, remaining sin is our greatest problem. Problem. And the truth is we are our own worst enemies. And I think we just need to be aware of that. We can't rest on our laurels, as, as they would say. And on top of that, the truth is we're in a spiritual battle. There's a real spiritual warfare all around us. There's opposition everywhere. Every day we're engaged in a spiritual battle on a personal level. Every day I think we're engaged in a spiritual battle on a corporate level. Every day, Satan and his emissaries are working as hard as they can to destroy you. Every day, they're working as hard as they can to destroy this fellowship. Every single day, they're doing battle, trying to profane the name of Christ. They're trying to bring reproach upon the Savior, to make you an unwilling victim to carry out his plans and his purposes. And because anytime the truth is proclaimed, there's always going to be opposition. We best not forget that. So every day, Satan is in opposition to us. Every day Satan is doing everything he can to entice you to sin, everything he can to bring division, discord, disunity to this congregation, everything that he can do to try to destroy the church from the inside out. So we probably ought to be mindful of that. Remember that every day we're in a constant spiritual struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, the world that hates God, uh, the world that hates Christ. And the more and more that we are in the world, the more, the more and more that we embrace the world, the more we're comfortable with the world, with what the world is saying, with what the world is selling, with the lies that the world tells. And we don't stop and think about the earth belongs to the Lord, not to the green agenda. Every time we listen to the world and embrace the world, become comfortable with it, we're becoming subtly taken out. That's why the New, uh, the New Testament commands and warns us, First John 2 and 15, do not, let the love, do not love the world nor the things of the world. If, do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but from the world. And you know this as well as I do. Every day the culture is trying to increasingly press its way in, force its way in, To your homes, families, to the fellowship. The world's thoughts, the world's priorities, the world's passions. The the world wants us to cave and believe its truth. Wicked agendas, absolute wicked agendas being forced upon us and our children. All the normalization now of all kinds of perversion. Perversion. Attempts in part to divide the family, to set children against parents and parents against children. That's in part what is behind all the transgender nonsense. It's division in the home. Your dad doesn't understand you. Your mom doesn't understand you. Come to us, we'll take care of your problem. It's to to create division. And again, the world around us is not our greatest problem, we're the problem. The Bible says, Proverbs 16, 18, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, Let him who who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So one of the responsibilities I have as a shepherd is is to warn, warn the body to stay on track, to keep our priorities in check, to be constantly evaluating uh, ourselves to see where we are. So again, here in John chapter 13, in in the context of this text, uh, the night before Christ is to be executed, the night before he's to be crucified, the very night that he's betrayed by Judas, the very night that all the disciples forsake him and flee, a Peter denying him. Remember the context? The context was all these men were arguing amongst themselves for their position of authority in the kingdom. Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be the greatest among them? The Lord stooped down, he girded himself wash their feet and then he says verse 34 a new commandment i give you that you love one another it's not new in the sense chronos like time but it's new uh kinos it's a it's new kind uh, a new kind of love fresh unprecedented unheard of love A, a love that's never been demonstrated before in the world it's the love of god through christ to literally lay down his life for us one who loved me and delivered himself up for me is the idea it's that sacrificial love that for the sake of others that again for others who may not even care anything about us uh, for those who even may hate us that's the love we're called to a new commandment i give you that you love one another even as i've loved you that you also love one another verse 35 by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another now, one of the characteristics I told you about, not only about Peter, but all of these men, is very similar to the characteristics of all of us. There's a tendency to hear but not listen. Shake our heads in affirmation. I, I love one another. And, and then we don't practically carry out the command. We hear but we don't listen. And again, remember the kind of love that the Lord is talking about here is not just love in word, but it's love in deed, love in action, agape love. Again, countercultural love. The world knows, knows nothing of this kind of love. The world can never produce this kind of love. It's the kind of love that only belongs to those who are indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit. Those, who've been, those who belong to God, those who have been transformed and changed from the inside out. And I told you, it's a love that's not a feeling, but it's a love that's based on determined acts of the will. It's a love that's based on determined acts of the will, that which always results in determined acts of self giving. It's a love that willingly and joyfully desires to put the welfare of others above one's own. It's a love that leaves no room for pride or vanity or arrogance or self. And again, it's a love that's an act of choice, a love that we're commanded to carry out on behalf of others. That's God-like agape love. That's the love that Christ calls us to love each other with. You love one another even as I've loved you. And sadly, when there are conflicts in the body of Christ... When there are relationships that are marked by anger or attitudes of hostility or enmity, strife, disputes, disunity, most of the time uh, those are not about some kind of primary theological issue regarding the gospel. Most of the time when disputes and disunity come into the body of Christ, it is always over the issue of personal preferences. And as I mentioned last time, I believe, if we're going to love each other as as Christ has loved us, then while we may not be literally called to lay down our life physically for another in, in most circumstances, we most certainly, if we're going to love each other as Christ has loved us, we're most certainly going to have to die to a series of little deaths, as it were, and lay aside our preferences for one another. If we want to be obedient to the command that you love one another, even as I've loved you. And if we're going to carry out that biblical command to love one another as Christ loved us, that's going to demand that we have an attitude of utter humility towards each other. And if we're going to have an attitude of utter humility, that means we need to look at the greatest example of humility and that's found over in Ephesians or over in Philippians chapter 2. So take your Bible and turn over there. Philippians chapter 2. And I have to move through this rather quickly. But before we do, first off, I need to draw your attention as we read the first verse. There's four if statements in verse 1. And I don't want to get too technical, but the Greek participle translated there, if, in this situation as it's related to the verb, introduces what's known as a first-class conditional clause. So it has the expressed idea like this. If this condition is true, and it is, then this is what follows. So a lot of grammarians would say that it's probably better to render it because or since. Because or since. That kind of gives you a more complete idea of what's being said here. So verse 1, let me read it, and we'll work our way back through it. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, or really sense, or because there is, I think really is the idea. Because there is encouragement in Christ. Pericholais is the, the word; it just means to come along, to come alongside, to give somebody assistance, to offer them comfort, counsel, exhortation. And I think the most important encouragement in Christ comes directly from the paraclete, from the person of the Holy Spirit, who dwells within each and every believer. And I really think that's kind of the idea here overarching. I I think what he's talking about here, encouragement of Christ, I really think he's talking about our union with Christ. He's talking about because of our union with Christ, we're all united together. Again, we're all indwelt by the common person of the Holy Spirit, and and that reality should cause us to strive to preserve the unity that God has granted to us in the body of Christ. In fact, if you look back up in verse 27 of of chapter 1, Paul says, only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whatever I come and see you or uh, or remain absent, or whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear that you are, here it is, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Right? Since there's encouragement in Christ, since you're together in Christ with one spirit, you're striving for the faith of the gospel, you're compelled to preserve that unity that God has given to you that God has granted you in the body of Christ. We are so individualistic in the West, and especially in the United States, because that's how we grew up. We've got to jettison that and start thinking biblically. We're not individuals. Well, we are. I mean, everybody gets saved individually. I got that part. But collectively, we're the body of Christ. Collectively, it's the church, the called-out ones. There's an innate unity because of God's dwelling of the person of the Holy Spirit that links us all together. Then Paul goes on here in verse 1 and he says, since there's consolation of love. The the word there in the Greek has a literal meaning of speaking closely with someone. And then the added idea of giving comfort and, and solace. Consolation is closely related to the word encouragement. So, Both words are really marked by a close relationship, a genuine concern and helpfulness. Because there's consolation of love, right? Uh, But because Christ has loved us, and Christ loved us when we were unlovely, Christ loved us when we were rebel sinners, and Christ continues to love us. And because Christ has loved us, we're to continually love others, like Paul said in Second Corinthians five thirteen and 14, it's the love of Christ that controls us. It's Christ transforming love in our own hearts and our own lives that controls us and compels us to love others. Therefore, we are to be conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Since there is uh, encouragement in Christ, since there is consolation of love. And then he says, since there's fellowship of the spirit. Koinonia, fellowship, community, communion, partnership, mutual sharing. Again, fellowship of the Spirit. Again, with this innate, uh, innate, uh, uh, intimate fellowship with each other because every believer is indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit, the one who lives within us. The one who sealed us, the one who's the guarantor uh, of our eternal inheritance, the one who's the source of our spiritual power, our spiritual gifts, our spiritual fruit, the one who helps us in our weakness, the one who we are to be controlled by and continually filled by. First Corinthians twelve thirteen, Paul says, for by one spirit, we're all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we're all made to drink of one spirit. Again, there's this unity in the body of Christ, the fellowship. So sense, or because all this is true, because there's encouragement in Christ, because there's consolation of love, because there's fellowship of the Spirit, there is also, he says, affection and compassion. Now, the word affection is a funny little word in Greek language. It means splank, or it's a it, it just literally means inward parts. If you have the uh, King James, I think it says bowels. What are they talking about? Because that's what they saw, thought the seed of the motion was. It was in the gut. You know, that's kind of the idea the emotions. Affections, the emotions. And it really speaks of tender. Tenderness and tender affection. Since there's affection and compassion. It literally means compassion, pity, mercy. Paul used the word over in Romans 12.1. He says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. It's interesting. We'll get to it eventually in the evening, Lord willing our study studying Romans. Everything I've said up to this point, therefore, by the mercies of God, everything I've told you is all the mercy of God in your life. Therefore, because God has been so merciful to you, you need to present yourself, present your bodies as living and holy sacrifices, as acceptable God, which is reasonable. It's just reasonable. It's your spiritual service of worship. So since there is, or because there is encouragement in Christ, since there is, or because there is consolation of love, because there is fellowship in the Spirit, because there. Is or since there is affection and compassion, and since there is tenderness and mercy. Uh, 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 believers are do every, to do everything they can to preserve the unity in the body of Christ. Because failing to do so weakens the church. And, and failing to pursue a unity really is a sin. And it really is the ultimate act of ingratitude towards God. That's why Paul told the believers, genuine believers, in Colossians 3.12, he says... And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against one another, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you, and beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. It's reasonable. Now, in verse 2, Paul makes it a little personal. He says, look. God's brought us all together, has unified us, and because he's been so very kind to us in Christ, again, Paul, as the preacher, makes this personal request, verse 2, make my joy complete, make my joy full. Again, I think it's a reasonable request by a faithful, hardworking servant of the Lord. It's a legitimate goal for believers to have. As the New Testament makes it clear, that believers are to love and honor and respect, uh, appreciate their human leaders, their pastors, their elders. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls, as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. Listen, for this would be unprofitable for you. Make make my joy complete. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Again, it means like-minded. It means thinking of the same things. And I don't think Paul really is speaking about doctrine here per se or or moral standards. I think in the context he's speaking about the activity to strive to achieve a common understanding and a a genuine agreement. He's talking about hard attitudes. He's talking again about hard attitudes, I think specifically of unity as opposed to disunity. Because disunity is a potential danger to every church. Make my joy complete, first by being of the same mind, second, he says... Maintaining the same love literally means an equal love for each other. You say, well, how in the world do you do that? Because some of the people in the room aren't very lovely. How do you do that? Not, not everybody in the room is equally as attractive. And I'm not talking physically, right? Maintain the same love, again, but it's agape love. What kind of love is that? It's a love of What? Choice, love of the will. It's an intentional conscious choice that seeks the welfare of others in the body of Christ. Maintaining or having the same love is the same kind of idea that Paul commands over in Romans 12.10 where he says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. Verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love. Again, we looked at this last time, I think. Uh, how do you know that you're a genuine believer? How do you tell the truth from the false, right? Uh, uh, how do you know that you're saved? First uh, John, John 3, verse 14 says, We know that we passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know, love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's good and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, 30 says, united in spirit. Literally one mind one accord i guess if you want to get more specifically one soul one soul it's the only time the word's is used anywhere in the new testament united in spirit be united in spirit be one souled. again by definition it excludes all personal ambition all selfishness all hatred envy jealousy strife any other any of the other evils that are the fruit of self-love United in spirit means to live in a selfless harmony with other believers in Christ. And then he gives one more, one last marker here of spiritual unity. Make my joy complete, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit. Number four, intent on one purpose. Intent on one purpose, literally thinking one thing. Be of the same mind, be agreed together, cherish the same views, be harmonious. And it's virtually a synonym with, of uh, having the same mind. So spiritual unity is defined by characteristics, or the characteristics that define spiritual unity are one mind, one love, one spirit, one purpose. I mean, they're all kind of common, or they, they complement each other. They kind of overlap. They're all inseparable. So basically, I think you said the very same thing four different ways, right, with just a slightly different emphasis each time. Now, Paul gives the principles that are going to make sure that you do that. How do you do that? This is what we're doing. How do we do that? How, how, how do we maintain spiritual uh, unity? And again, he lists five of them. And, and very quickly, again, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Principle number one. Do nothing. Go ahead. Take a stab at it. What do you think that means in the Greek? Principle number one. Do nothing from selfishness. Erythia is the word. It just means electioneering. Uh, intriguing for office. Uh, um, It's the idea in the New Testament of courting distinction or or desire to put self forward. Uh, I believe the ESV says selfish ambition. It's someone who wants to put themselves forward, wants to advance themselves, and uh, they'll use strife to get ahead. That's kind of the attitude. It's really a worldly attitude. And when you become selfish... Listen, you're literally at war with everybody else around you. So the word can refer to a party spirit or factions or rivalry or partisanship. Any kind of self-seeking that leads to quarreling, hassling, haggling, fighting, arguing, contending. Paul used it over in the list in um, Galatians chapter 5. He called it, it's translated into the English disputes, but it's a work of the uh, flesh, not the work of the spirit. Again, in the time it was used as a word in politics, uh, this is selfishness or selfish ambition. One writer says this: uh, it was used in politics to seek an office by unfair means, and he says, uh, "ugly self-promotion that pushes oneself up in front by stepping on someone else's neck." Anything I can do to get in front. I mean, you can go on and on, right? Egotism, advancing self. Listen, it's always destructive. It's always destructive it's always disruptive and again it comes out of our flesh it's deeply rooted in pride it makes us want to get what we want to get it makes us want to get our own way it makes us want to set our own course it makes us want to focus on our own agenda it wants to build up ourselves, and at the same time it doesn't mind tearing down someone else it's selfishness selfish ambition it's a deadly sin a destructive sin it destroys first the person who manifests it, even though maybe no one else is harmed, but they are. It destroys the person who first manifests that sin because it's a sin that comes out of the heart, a bad heart. And when obviously when it's manifested, it, it breeds anger and resentment, jealousy. And there's probably no sin that can more quickly divide and weaken a church than selfishness. Listen to me. There's probably no sin that can more quickly divide and weaken the church than selfishness, even in a congregation that is doctrinally sound and spiritually mature on a lot of different levels. And no one's immune to the threat of the sin. The church of Corinth, as you know, struggled greatly with this sin. That's why Paul implored them. 1 Corinthians 1.10 I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all agree there be no divisions among you that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. For I have been, been informed that concerning you that my brethren by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying I am of Paul and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas and I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul is not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I mean, all these people in positions of leadership there in the Church of Corinth were worthy of the congregation's respect and admiration. But these groups had splintered off, and they'd become fascist and self-serving, and they're promoting themselves and their favorite leaders above promoting the cause of Christ. Well, they were using Christ's name, but they were still acting out in the flesh. And when you act out in the flesh, it poisons everything that is done on behalf of the cause. Again, one writer says this, Discord and divisions are inevitable when people focus on their agendas to the exclusion of others in the church. Disregard of fellow believers, no matter how unintentional, is a mark of loveless, sinful indifference that produces jealousy, contention, strife, and other enemies of spiritual unity. Wherever jealousy and selfish ambition exist, whatever the cause, there is disorder and every evil thing. James 3, verse 16. do nothing from selfishness principle number two he says and empty conceit ken adoxia is the word two words made up of two words canos which means empty doxa which means glory so if you have the uh, king james the new king james i think it says vainglory vainglory groundless self-esteem empty pride an exaggerated opinion of self. And wherever you have selfishness, you're always going to have empty conceit. And any time you have people focusing on themselves and their own personal interests above all else, above everybody else's interests, whenever you have an overinflated uh, opinion or overinflated self-image, you're going to have conflict, disagreements, disunity, discord. Because people focused on themselves... And their agendas and their preferences of how wonderful they are are going to want everybody else to agree with them that they are very wonderful and they want everybody else to do exactly what they want everybody else to do. Again, both of these sins originate in the heart. Sins of pride. And pride is self-deceiving. And of course, pride is a tremendous enemy against disunity or a tremendous enemy, enemy of spiritual unity. Pride is a tremendous enemy against spiritual unity. And again, I think something that can take each and every one of us uh, on. So we have to be constantly uh, uh, on guard against that. Now, the first two means of promoting spiritual unity are negative. The third one Paul mentions here is positive. It says, do nothing from selfishness or into conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Humility of mind, the King James renders it, lowliness of mind. Have a humble opinion of yourself. Have a deep sense of your moral littleness, your, your, your littleness. Right, you're, you're just nothing. Modesty again, humility. Humility of mind is really the opposite of pride. And again, it's the sin of pride that separates men from God, and it's the sin of pride that separates men from men. First uh, Peter five and five: You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all you do, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Pride is a sin of all men, especially younger men. And Genuine humility requires a believer not to think very highly of themselves. Rather, they try to regard one another as more important than himself. And the word regard uh, means to lead or go before one writer says this, regard is from a verb that means more than just having an opinion. refers uh, a regard or It refers to a, a carefully thought out conclusion based on the truth, the word regard. And he says it doesn't mean to pretend that others are more important, but to believe that others are actually more important. Regard one another is more important. More important, that word is... Hooper echo, we get our English word hyper. Hyper means the hooper echo, the word means to have or hold over, stand above, rise above. So do nothing from selfishness or empty deceit. Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should, in humility, really, genuinely try to regard one another, really believing, considering others are more important, more superior. Better than yourself. Now that's hard for us to do. One, because we're all fallen, even though we're redeemed, that's still hard for us to do. And secondly, our flesh always wants what our flesh wants. And our flesh always produces a selfishness, our flesh always incites our pride, our flesh always becomes consumed with our own little agendas. With their own little preferences, with their own worldviews. And when self takes over, jealousy arises, and out of jealousy comes strife, conflict, and a loss of unity. Now, let me stop for a moment and ask us a question that we need to consider carefully Why has God brought us all together in this one room? I mean, we come from a variety of different countries, states, backgrounds, professions, cultures. What is the one unifying factor in the room? Isn't the one unifying factor of every one of us in the room, isn't that we're all sinners? All of us. Every single one of us has offended God. Every single one of us has violated his holiness. We're all sinners by birth, sinners by practice, sinners by divine declaration. The one unifying factor of all of us in the room is that we're guilty before a holy God. How guilty? How great a sinner are you? I'll give you the answer in case you're having a hard time with it. you're, You're great enough of a sinner, big enough of a sinner, that it was only the death of the dear Lord Jesus Christ that could ever atone for your sin and bring reconciliation and forgiveness between you and God. That's how big of a sinner you are. Now, let me ask you another question Who's the greatest sinner that you know personally? Who's the greatest sinner that you know? Because again, if we're just gut honest, a lot of times we look around the room and go, well, "Yeah, yeah, you know, right." I'm not as bad as. And you fill the the fill the spot the blank with a person's name. And the truth is, most of us like to gloat over other people's failures and over other people's sin. But I tell you, that's not considering others as superior to yourself. That's thinking less of others and more of yourself. And the truth is, none of us really knows what's in anybody else's heart. But we do know what's in our own heart. And if we're honest, even as saved individuals, it's not very good what's in our own heart. Again, who's the greatest sinner that you know personally? Who's the Who has the most corrupt mind that you know personally? When you begin to look at the holiness of God and think of your own personal situation before that holy God, if you view yourself properly, if we all view ourselves properly, understanding that our heart is desperately wicked and deceitful, the true the truth is we should all have a pretty low estimate of ourselves. The truth is we should all be looking at other people as more superior to each of us. The truth is from that perspective, having a proper understanding of ourselves before a holy God, that we're great sinners saved by great grace. The command to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but the humility of mind, letting each of you regard one another as more important than themselves, ought to be a bit easier to carry out, especially if we're honest and we evaluate the information that each and every one of us has about our own hearts. Therefore, with that information, there's a fourth principle. Verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests look out for, observe, contemplate, mark off, fix your eyes, direct your attention. And that's pretty tough for us because we live in a society that loves itself and only cares about its own personal interests. It doesn't care for anybody else. That's the society around us. That's not who we are in Christ. The sinners saved by grace, sinners loved by God. Again, we're called to love each other with this Agape love, this countercultural, godlike, Christ-like love. Uh, again, a love that's self-sacrificial, a love that is interested in meeting the needs of others, not meeting our own needs. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. That you also love one another, and by this all men will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, there's conflict and disunity in, in the church when we forget who we are in Christ again great sinners saved by great grace uh, there's conflict in, in disunity when we start focusing on our own personal interests and not the interests of others there's conflict when we lose sight of the big picture that we're all providentially gathered together this morning by God's grace assembled into this fellowship known as Cornerstone Bible Church there's conflict and disunity in the church when we fall prey to the culture and fall prey to our own sinful flesh. Conflict when we start, stop thinking about things that would serve and honor the Lord and we start thinking about our own personal preferences. It could be something very easy, very simple. Something along this line, you know what? I know there's room this morning, but you know most of the time, it's getting pretty full on a Sunday morning. I better hurry up and find my seat. And you make sure you realize this is my seat. I've been sitting in this same seat for years. Nobody's entitled to sit in the seat by me. And you know, I need a little bit more room than most people. So if I have my coat on one side and my Bible on the other because I'm a Westerner and I like room it's okay I'm sure that other people can find a seat to sit down somewhere else I I could move I could move them in or put them under the I I think there's some things out in both foyers especially as winter's coming I think they call them, listen, coat racks and in the Greek they mean coat racks you take your coat off and you put it up there, especially when you're wearing like three layers of coats, and you hang them before you walk in the room. You know, I could move over. Or I could be looking out for people who, who need a place, a place to sit and encourage them to come sit by me. But you know what? That's the usher's responsibility. And you better solve that problem. And you know what? They should have got here earlier anyway to find a good seat like I did. <laughs> good. Good. I'm not asking for pity. I didn't even have a place to sit last week. I got up and gave my seat to someone else. I'm not like looking for a bigger crown. I'm just telling you that's the reality sometimes. And it's going to get full. And when conflict arises, and we stop thinking about others and start thinking about ourselves, when we stop thinking about the honor of the Lord and start thinking about our own personal interests, there's going to be Problems. It could be that one line of uh, ridiculousness that I just laid out there. Or or because our hearts are so deceitfully wicked, problems arise and conflicts uh, uh, happen in the church when people promote their own ministry above every other ministry. Nobody's doing these things. I'm just throwing them out, right? Somebody considers youth ministry more important than adult ministry. Somebody considers college ministry more important than children's ministry. Somebody thinks that personal evangelism should have a higher place than uh, group Bible study. I mean, the possibilities of conflict are endless, And I'm just telling you, divisions are always destructive. That's where we're called to not merely look out for our own personal interests. Therefore, principle number five, but also look out, it's implied, look out for the interests of others. So if we're going to love each other as Christ has commanded us, he who gave his life for us, if we're going to love each other as a visible testimony to the world of the fact that we're genuinely saved, that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, we've been transformed, changed by him from the inside out. If we're going to maintain unity of love and purpose, realizing that uh, we have a great, uh, in God's great kindness and great privilege, we're all here together in this fellowship, saved by grace, but we're all here together in this fellowship and this point of history. You were born for this time. Then we're going to have to intentionally, with great intentionality, each and every one of us has to be not merely be not merely be looking out for our own personal interests, but also actively, intentionally looking out for the interests of others. And again, it's self-evident, but it requires a deliberate, persistent effort. Deliberate, persistent effort. It requires prayer, because it'll never come to fruition unless we truly. Regard one another more important than themselves. And that'll never happen unless we have an ever greater, growing understanding of the love of Christ for us. And it'll never happen unless our focus is squarely placed on the person of Christ before us and we mimic his attitude, his actions. That's why Paul says in verse 5, Have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not require equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearances of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's no greater picture of love. There's no greater example of humility that should motivate us as believers to live in love and kindness and humility towards others than the incarnation of the Son of God. So if you call yourself a believer, then you follow him. Call yourself a Christian, you follow him. You follow his example of selfless love, his humble self-denial, his self-sacrifice. That's the Christ-like love that he's called us not only to follow, but, but he's enabled us to achieve with the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. And again, as I said earlier at the top of the hour, very few of us are ever going to be called literally to die in the place of others in the body of Christ. But if we're going to love each other as Christ loved us and maintain spiritual unity and keep our focus on the big things, what God has called us to do through this ministry, then all of us are certainly going to have to die to a series of little deaths, as it were. We're all going to have to at some point lay aside our preferences for one another if we want to be obedient. To the command that you love one another even as I have loved you. So, if we're going to be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, with humility of mind, each of you regarding one another as more important than ourselves, not merely looking out for our own personal interests, but also for the interests of others, then we're going to most definitely have to have the attitude that was supremely manifest again in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ doing during his incarnation. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Lord of glory, the the sinless Son of God, the King of Israel, Who left his home in heaven. God who incarnated himself. God who took on flesh and became a man. One who he himself took a towel again and he girded himself and washed the dirty feet of his disciples because they wouldn't serve each other. The one who chose to come into this world out of his love for us. The one who chose to go to Calvary's cross to redeem sinners like you and I again out of his love for us. The one who chose to face all the punishment and the horror of the cross as the sin bearer, so that you and I might be reconciled unto God the Father, forgiven, brought into God's family, adopted as sons and daughters into that family, made objects of God's great eternal love. So if we're going to love each other as Christ has loved us, then we're going to have to humble ourselves. Keep our eyes on Christ. Demonstrating the same selfless, others-oriented love that he showed. We're going to have to humble ourselves and adopt his attitude in all of life. The one who did, listen, the one who did all that he did with the express purpose that we might honor and glorify him here on earth in time. In the time in which we live. We talked about this a week or two ago on Sunday night. Listen, salvation is not for your glory. That's a worldly mindset. Salvation is not for the glory of the sinner. Salvation is is for the glory of the Savior. We get saved. We are beneficiaries of God's kindness to us, to Christ. We're not the issue in the universe. God is. He saved us that we might represent him well to others in the time in which we live, because this is the time in which we live. He saved us, that we might represent him well to others, that we might proclaim the glories of Christ, the glories of our God in heaven to sinners who, are, again, are desperately in need of the same forgiveness and salvation that we have received through Christ, that comes to men only by way of a gift, not by works, but by a gift of God's kindness, his love, his mercy. And I don't know, I, 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 don't, I, I don't set times or dates, but as I look at the world, it seems to me we're late in the fourth quarter. Time's running out. This nation, I've told you this several times, this, nation's, uh, this nation, this world really, I think, is under active judgment of God. This is Romans 1 judgment. This is the, the, the wrath of abandonment. This is just God giving over men to their depravity. And we gather each and every week here in this fellowship not to get something from the service. We come each and every week to give to God in Christ our worship, our worship. We worship Christ. We worship our Father in heaven. We come to thank them and to praise them and, and to adore them, to tell, us of, tell them of our tremendous love for them, our gratitude. We come to acknowledge their preeminence. Who owns this earth? The Lord does. What does he own in this earth? Absolutely everything. We gather to worship and exalt God in Christ, and we scatter to all the different places that we live with the same goal to make much of God in Christ, to proclaim the excellencies of the Savior who saved us so that men might know him because he's worthy, that men might know him as father and not face him as judge because that's the command of the sovereign. 1 Peter 2 and 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, for pe- uh, people for God's own possession. Here's the reason that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, God in his kindness has brought us all together in the room by his great uh, providence into the fellowship. And again, we're here at this specific point in history where we all acknowledge things are tough out there. It's getting darker. We all acknowledge that persecution can be a real possibility. The storm clouds of opposition are growing. We can look around and we see the cultures in the death throes. Again, under the active judgment of God, and God has given men over to the depravity of their minds, and we're just one outpost of hope. One outpost of light in a dark world. All of us charged with proclaiming the excellencies of Him who's called us out of darkness into His marvelous light to those around us. So I've said it several times God and His providence is kind kindness brought us all together. And He and His providence is bringing, at times, a lot of us together. The building, at times, is becoming stressed. We're landlocked. Physical space is limited. Parking is limited, as you know. How did you enjoy the hike? In fact, parking might not get any better because the city of Xenia has some redevelopment plans that they're uh, in the process of trying to start, which would eliminate almost all the parking out that direction. Tonight starts Kids for Truth. We have nearly 40 kids in our Kids for Truth program in the evenings, plus about 10 to 12 adult workers. That's 50 people that are taking ministry in a house wasn't designed for that occupancy how do we meet the growing needs of our children's ministry now how do we meet the growing needs of our children in in, in the future we're sitting around the circle the night after having a meal together there's i don't know half a dozen of us sitting there and 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 i'm 62 and jason Kelly's on the other end He's, he's 43 that's a generation and we looked out the way and there's like 25 kids or 30 kids or whatever all playing together i've been here for this is the start of my 18th year in a generation all those kids are going to be gone out out of the families right they're all grown up we have issues now we have issues to consider for the future in a couple of weeks next week we normally take somewhere between 40 to 50 college students and we want them here we want to encourage them we're going to have to fit them in somewhere and each and every week it seems god in his providence keeps bringing more and more people families who want to come, new families, individuals sometimes who want to come. They just want to sit under the teaching of the word. They just want to be encouraged in Christ. And we're having a real problem of where to put them. I don't know how many people are in the, uh, in the overflow room this morning, but normally there's are somewhere from between just a few, upwards to about 30, I think, is the highest I've seen this summer. And obviously it's the summer, so this room's fluctuating back and forth on how many people are here or not here. And sometimes it's big, and we got a lot of people in the back room. So again, as the day in which we live, the days are growing darker, God in his providence continues to bring people to sit here under the teaching of the word. Here's the questions. Are you willing to give up your personal preferences and comfort to allow more people to be a part of our fellowship? Are you willing to consider change? I'm not saying anything specifically this morning. I'm just saying... As the days come, we might be forced with some difficult questions we're going to have to give an answer for as the fellowship continues to grow now and, Lord willing, continues to grow in the future. But if we're ever going to make, answer any kind of questions, we've got to make sure that we're committed to each other and love each other as Christ loves us. I think that has to be preeminent. And again, a love that's not just theoretical. It's a love that's practical, tangible, demonstrable, the love of action. And we need to be praying. We need to be praying that God gives us some wisdom on what we should do. Pray that God would make sure that our heart attitudes are always proper, they're Christ-like. Stop and evaluate our own hearts, our own attitudes, our own preferences. Consider how we can serve each other better in the body of Christ. Again, always committed to the unity of Christ. Always committed to loving each other as Christ has loved us. Always committed to striving to emulate the great example of humility that we see in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Committing ourselves, again, to doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit with humility of mind. Each of us regarding one another as more important than himself. And not merely looking out for our own personal interests, but also the interest of others. Always having our focus on others. Always having our focus on Christ. Always having our focus completely on Christ and his glory. In everything we do and in every decision we make. Take your bulletin out. What's on the front cover of that bulletin? Each week we print that bulletin. Each week on the front of that bulletin it says nothing matters except God and his glory. And I prayerfully pray, I sincerely hope, that's true in all of our hearts. That that's just not something printed on a page, it's not something we say, but it's actually something we believe. And therefore we're willing in Christ-like humility to consider how we might serve others as God continues to bring people and the fellowship continues to grow.